Hello and welcome to episode 34 of Booze, Booms and Busts. My name is Boaya Shoshan and we have a special guest on today's show. It is Nick O'Connor, the former publisher of South Bank Investment Research. And I'm joined as ever by Sam Volkering. Gentlemen, thank you very much both for joining me. What are you both drinking this evening? Nick, we'll start with you. Cheers, Boaya. Before I tell you what I'm drinking uh, tonight, I just want to say thank you for the case of uh, quantitative ease which you sent my way whenever the first uh batch of that was released i don't know how many you sent me but i think i've drunk them all I had to sort of ration my consumption of them because it's pretty strong stuff in fact when they first arrived we were still allowed to have people round to the garden at least mm. and i had a couple of friends over to to drink them and one, one of my friends drank enough of them that he ended up sort of half blinding himself on a stick and had to <laughs> to the opticians on an emergency appointment the next morning with a sort of scarred retina, which seemed, it seemed somehow appropriate that a drink called quantitative ease should end up in a man being half blind at the end of it. So cheers for that. Um, and what I'm drinking tonight, well, I, I've got a, I've just opened a bottle of a snake dog uh, Indian pale ale, which is, is pretty nice. It's pretty good. Oh, good. We'll uh, we'll get to the rating once you once you've gone to the end of it. Uh, Sam, what are you on? What's your first beer of the evening? So this one's called uh, the Sir Plum McCartney Plum Sour Ale from the Moondog Craft Brewery, and I didn't realise this, but I think this is two weeks in a row now. Uh, this one's from out my neck of the woods, originally in uh, in Victoria, in Australia, in a suburb called Preston. Uh, which is which is pretty much metropolitan Melbourne, um, and and you know what I it's when I was looking at this, uh, I realised that it was an Australian beer because it has on the can uh, you can get a ten cent refund at collection depots and points in participating states and territories, so you can still get the old cash for cans back home in Australia. Except I think it's only in Adelaide, um, which probably says a bit about the way Australia's. Uh, geared up but yeah the sir plum mccartney plum sour ale definitely plum definitely a sour um but as we know i'm, I'm a bit of a fan of these so so far so good oh very good uh, tonight i'm afraid and for the next following weeks uh, i'm afraid i must be very disappointing with my with my beer choice as it will only be the same thing uh, i'm currently on day three of my beer fast where i'm only drinking doppelbock uh, water black tea coffee etc no food uh, until the end of Lent. So day three, uh, it's, I must say I'm pretty tired. I have been feeling very tired today. But uh, now that I've had some beer, I am uh, I'm a little sharper. Uh, and so hopefully I'll be able to uh, be relatively compass mentis during, the, during this podcast. Referring to uh, Nick, your, uh, the, with the quantitative ease that, uh, that, that you had, uh, it feels so long ago that we actually brewed that. But I, I am pleased to say it does look like we'll be doing a repeat batch of quantitative ease in the future. Uh, and there is another one, actually. There's an amber ale. Uh, that we are working on at the moment um, at, you know, with, the, with the good people of Cheddar Ales, which uh, is actually Bitcoin-themed uh, this time around. Uh, it will be called Blockhead, uh, with the B being the Bitcoin logo, of course. And I chose an amber ale specifically because everyone always goes for, um, uh, you know, the Bitcoin symbol is always displayed in orange, right? Mm. And you see Bitcoiners talk about taking the orange pill. Uh, so it's an amber ale, 6.25% ABV to reflect the 6.25 block reward that, uh, that occurred last year in the happening. And uh, hopefully that will be with us uh, probably by the end of Lent, actually. So uh, by the time I've, I've been able to, uh, to, to run myself through all of this doppel box that I bought. I was, yeah, we should I was be hoping good to you go. Weren't, I was uh, hoping you weren't going to go through. Course, you, sorry, I was going to say back. I hope you weren't going to go through the quantitative ease approach to the ABV content because if we if we went down that path and followed the the money printing, then we'd probably be up to about a ten percent beer or something by now. And and if yep. you if you'd equally followed that, I guess along the lines of of Bitcoin's price, then it's just going to be one of those beers that just continuously gets stronger and stronger until it's it's basically like one of those elephant beers. <laughs> yeah, it does seem the, like um, oh, the sorry, ABV was uh, was the best part of uh, of of easing. It, I mean, it even became I sort of referred to it, drinking it as as easing in my own head. You know, something bad happened the other day, 
kids are whinging, some you know it starts raining or you know, whatever it might be. I think oh, I'll be I'll be easing tonight. It sort of became like QE. It became the answer to everything. It whether sneaks it up on you, once or not. <laughs> Out of nowhere, all of a sudden, you're just like, holy shit, that's just come and punched me in the back of the head when I least expected it. Yeah. <laughs> Darling, will you be easing tonight? Yes, I'll be I'll be easing tonight. Yes, I'll be easing I quite heavily. I think uh, you know if we made a quantitative tightening, uh, what kind of beer would that be? Because that would really need to be really be beer. sort of. It, it, it well, it wouldn't exist. Well, would it? it would be a really short run. They'd only do it for a little period <laughs> it'd, of time. It'd be and one. It would be so strong that everyone would hate it. It would be one beer with an alcohol. It would be a spirit. Actually, it'd probably have to be a spirit, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think, so no, disgusting. It would be one of it. It would be like a sort of. You know, one of those terrible American lagers that are, you know, light beers, which are, and they sort of emphasize the fact that they're made from the, the, the finest mountain water. And it's sort of, it's sort of, it's, it, you know, it's called a beer, but it, it's not, it doesn't really taste like a beer or, or make you that drunk. It's sort of like the sort of thing that you would, you would see somebody drinking in an American sitcom. You know, like the dad comes home and he gets one of these, you know, these light beers out of it. That's like tightening. Like it's not really, it's not really a thing. You just do it for a little bit of time, sort of for appearances' sake, and then they get on with the easing again. I mean, I think that's where we are with it. <laughs> yeah, it, I, you know, and I am slightly on the fence with if we did do quantitative easing again. I'm, I'm erring more on the side that uh, we keep the ABV that we had previously because that was something that people seem to like very much even though the Bank of England balance sheet has expanded quite a lot. Uh, so we'd be well over, uh, you know. Yeah, and I'd be off my tits after one, to be frank. Hmm. Yeah. But, I mean, at the same time, it would be pretty interesting because it was very good beer. Imagine. Uh, we, are, we are going on somewhat. I was gonna, sorry, oh, one okay. last thing. Imagine if during Lent, this was your beer that you ended up drinking all, all the way through at the quantity of ease. Hmm. That would actually be pretty good, to be honest with you. I mean, Doppelbock beer is not a beer that I actually, it's not a style that I actually like, uh, but I'm just doing it because that's what the monks did. And they made it, like Doppelbock is brewed as a style that is meant to be really high calorie. So I think it will be, I think while I would prefer to drink something like Quantitative Ease, Roll of Lent, I don't think it would be as sustaining as Doppelbock would be. So I'm, I'm sticking with it for the moment. You know, maybe... When do you okay. have the first beer then, if you're not having any food? Because I thought you, it was, this was a joke. I saw you write it somewhere. I think it was on Twitter. And I go, oh, that's funny. And then I thought, no, that's the sort of thing that sounds like a joke, but in, in sort of Boaz's little universe, that's just, he's deadly serious about. So when, because it's very much a sort of pre-Reformation monk move, if you don't mind me saying, it's the, the sort of thing that had people really angry at the church, locked up in your, in your compound drinking beer all day <laughs> taking money from people but um like when like when do you have your because you must be gasping for something by lunchtime oh, i suppose you're drinking tea and coffee like, but like, how do you hold off long enough yeah uh well i mean i'm still kind of navigating around that personally <laughs> i've never like when i when i was younger like when i was uh when i was by the, point, by the time I was like a teenager, I never felt hungry in the morning for whatever reason. So I never eat breakfast, really. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of, so it's yeah. not too hard for, for me to sort of get to fairly, you know, fairly far on in the day before I actually want something. Uh, but then you just get some hunger pangs and whatever. And you can stave it off with, uh, you know, I, I like chewing tobacco like that. That sort of keeps the wolf from the door. Uh, black coffee, black tea. But, you know, I'm only three days in, so I'm probably going to have to sort of innovate in this space and come up with some, some other other forms of uh, doing it. I think some people who have done this, because there, there are a few people who've done this in the modern era, have done it, at, like have gone all in and just started drinking in the morning, which I think is, uh, which I, <laughs> it doesn't seem something that would be like a good strategy for being able to work at the same time. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna definitely gonna hold off on that until uh, for a while at least. Uh, but yeah, for now it's just uh, just wait until the afternoon and then have a beer. I think you'll find you're quite productive, weirdly, because I think um, <laughs> no, as, as, as stupid as it sounds, I, I found that if I don't, the, the later I eat lunch, the hungry I am, I am throughout the day, the more productive I am. And it's once I once I eat a decent meal by 
my productivity or ability to write, especially writing. I can do other things, phone calls and stuff like that, but you know, kind of, kind of nose dives a little bit and then it picks back up again in the evening. So the, like the sort of fasting approach might be counterintuitively, it might be quite good for you, but then you will, once you start drinking, obviously become, you know, probably belligerent and you won't want to take any phone calls, but that, but <laughs> so you'll have to get all your writing done earlier in the day. And then you'll just, you'll just have a sort of Jekyll and Hyde existence. <laughs> I, I think it might surprise you, although it's quite extreme. So there you go. Hmm. Uh, inevitably belligerent is a uh, is a good way of looking at it, I suppose. Um, I think you know, with the interestingly with Doppelbock, there's a funny the, there's a funny sort of story about its uh, how it originated as a, as a beer. I mean, there were the, these monks in Bavaria who were all about it, uh, but they only got sort of um, uh, papal approval for this uh, in order to you know to get a license to sell it because they sent a load of this in a barrel. Uh, over to the Pope to say, is it all right if we drink only this for Lent, pretty much? And uh, when it, when, by the time it arrived in Rome, it already, it had, you know, there'd been a big fluctuation in temperature uh, and there were all these other, like, it had been like rolled around loads of times. Anyway, from the, from the period it had gone, uh, from the duration of that, of that journey, uh, by the time it reached the Pope, uh, it was sour. And so when he tasted it, he was like, yeah, you guys can have, you, you guys are, are welcome to brew as much of this as you want. It tastes so bad that, uh, you know, this will probably be good for you during Lent. You know, this will be a punishing existence. Uh, but of course, you know, it, it actually tastes, actually, it tastes very sweet, and quite, quite rich. But I must say, in, in, uh, regarding our sort of rating system for it, uh, as I, as, you know, as I drink this week on week, I do think I the ratings are going to become progressively negative uh, as this carries on because already I'm only like three days in and I'm pretty sure I'm going to give it a harsher rating than I did last week when, when I first had this thing. Um, but you know we are I, I digress. We are we are going off uh, slightly on a tangent here. Uh, I think it I think it would be good to uh, would be good to comment on the whole on the whole Bitcoin thing regarding Blockhead and whatnot. Um, you know first you know today we've got a trillion dollar market cap for Bitcoin and that's if that, but that's only if you use you know the full uh, the full sort of supply as it were when you look at the actual liquid amount of tokens uh, that mm -hmm. are being traded uh, that could that, you know could conceivably or will conceivably be traded around you'd be looking more at a market cap of maybe 780 billion sam i mean do you think uh, the trillion dollar market cap is important do you think we should be making big things of this or do you think uh, this is just a uh, you know it's just something to to see in the headlines and then dismiss uh, I think it's, yeah, I, th I think it's probably the latter of those two. I, I think it's uh, important in terms of people that want to probably one day sell it uh, back to their ever diminishing valueless fiat money. Um, I mean, if you, if you measured it in say the Indonesian rupiah, then I think the market cap now stands at about wow. Well, what, what's what's the one over it? So like fourteen quadrillion Indonesian rupiah at the moment. Uh, if I if I take it maybe into the Korean won, then now we're, we're well over a, a trillion. It's uh, you know it, it's it's all perspective, right? Depends on what currency is native to you. If you're looking at the Argentine peso, uh, you know we're at ninety one trillion. So uh, it, it's it's perspective. It's just it's just a number in in fiat money in the us dollar in particular this mm. time and uh you know it's exciting for people because they you know came on board with fiat money and, and and a lot of people will probably sell it out at some point everyone everyone has their price so to speak so you know and and to be fair and people should at some point if they can get rid of bad debts and 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 shackles that keep them pinned to the fiat money system you know, if you can, if you can use this um, period, this you know, this phenomenon to to break free of those, you know, of those ties, I think that's that's probably a good outcome. Um, but I would certainly advocate that at no point should anyone ever not hold some, at least. It's funny the uh, the Argentinian phenomenon with Bitcoin, because. Uh, you know, and it's common throughout South America as well. Uh, just anywhere they're, you know, abusing their currency, you'll find that there are Bitcoiners. Peru is particularly, uh, 
you know, they, they use Bitcoin a huge amount there, same with Venezuela and that. But with Argentina, I find it quite interesting in that uh, they don't have nearly so much of a gold or silver culture there relative to Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin really is like the thing there. And buying and investing in gold bullion to protect your wealth is not something that seems to be very common there, which I find quite interesting. I'm not sure where that kind of stems from. I think it might be to do with uh, sort of government regulation on who can deal in bullying and stuff. I would but say it's something that sort of struck me where you get, oh, Karen. I would, I would just, I would suggest it's probably because they didn't need gold, they had the, the US dollar. You know, if you, if you live in a place like that and, you know, you're, you're going through a very specific currency crisis, as in everywhere else is fine, stable economy, stable system. So we're talking like the 1990s and the you know, early 2000s. Why do you need to buy gold? You just need to get into the to the USD. You get into pounds, it wouldn't matter, but but the dollar would be the thing that you would move into. So the dollar is your gold, if you know what I mean. And it performs that function within your economy. So maybe right. there's just a, a residual, and, and Bitcoin, that there's other drivers of the price. That would account for the fact that, yeah, perhaps you don't, buy in, you know you don't, don't move into gold because there's going to be uh, a lot more friction moving in and then out when you need the money a year later you just get used to buying into another fiat currency whereas bitcoin's perhaps something a bit different whereas what we're seeing now when the u.s dollar is falling against bitcoin which is one way of describing what's happening i know it's described as bitcoin going up but it could equally be described as the dollar the, the dollar going down mm. um that's a very different situation because everything's priced in dollars and therefore you don't know what the price of anything really is if, if, if we're seeing moves like that. So I just wonder if it's sort of a reserve currency thing. That would be my guess. Yeah, there's got to be something to that. I mean, the fact that uh, you get ATMs that uh, will produce both you know, local currency and USD uh, all the way throughout like South America it speaks a lot to that. That, that strange sort of scenario where, you know, in South America, if you look at like the dollar index where you're just looking at South American currencies versus the dollar, it's just uh, post, you know, pretty much post the 90s. Uh, there's just this incredible decline. It's just uh, like a, a 30, 60 set square with, uh, with a peak up on the top left-hand side. And it just goes down and down and down. It just doesn't seem to be stopping at all. And in that scenario, well, what would you do? Well, in that scenario, inflation in the US looks pretty good compared to inflation back home. So why do you know greenbacks are uh, are just as good as are, are good as gold, uh, as it were? And that that seems to me that would make a lot of sense to me. I mean, Sam, what do you make of that? I the thing that fascinates me about how gold uh, interacts with with currencies uh, is something that. So if you go back pre pre-Bitcoin and, and pre-crypto. Like imagine right now if, if I mean, this is, so this is what I try and can't quite figure out in my mind. And you guys maybe have a better idea than me because I'm not completely down on the gold market and, and its effects. But if Bitcoin and crypto didn't exist right now, but we had the same kind of economic conditions around the world, everything else was the same except Bitcoin and crypto didn't exist. Do you think that we would be seeing the same kind of price action in gold right now? And, and and because we do have Bitcoin and crypto, do you think that that really, that there probably is the huge swathe of the market that would otherwise be shifting to gold right now? Or is it something that, that, that is coexisting is one, or is Bitcoin kind of stealing the market from, from gold in that sense? Hmm, maybe. I mean, I think parts of that might be true. I don't think we'd be seeing gold and and silver prices going, you know, the kind of price moves that we've seen in, in cryptocurrencies because there's too many other dimensions. It's a new technology. There's connections to the blockchain. There's the unit of exchange. medium. You know, gold doesn't have any of that going on for it. It's just a store of, of, of wealth. And to be honest, most people, I think if you're buying gold, expect that, you know, wanting and trying to make a ton of money I don't know. I just don't think a lot of gold investors are actually doing it for that reason. They're doing it because I would guess they want to buy some gold and they would think, okay, I want that gold to be there in 20, 30, 40 years time. What it's worth is kind of irrelevant. It will still be a lump of gold and it will have some value. So that's what, for instance, that's why I invest in gold and, and, and other precious metals because I think, wow, my kids are very young. I want to put some money aside for them. 20 years time, maybe they're going to need it. God. 
God only knows what the currency and financial systems will look like by then. But gold mm. and silver will just be there. You know, wherever it is I decide to keep it, it will still be that thing. And that's why people buy it. So you might see a little bit more of that. But Bitcoin has this whole other dimension. Plus, it has this thing of like, what is a Bitcoin worth? How do we value that? There's no revenue stream attached to it. It's too new. It's emergent. And therefore, the price action is way more volatile as people try to figure out what it's worth. It won't keep going up forever, I don't think. Not at the rate it has. Maybe it will level off at a million. Maybe it will level off at 50,000. Maybe it will level off at 20,000. We don't know yet. It's sort of too new. So, Hmm. I mean, Boaz invests more heavily in cryptocurrency than I do. But I think he's a gold and silver bug like I am. So maybe he has a different view. I think I'd broadly agree with uh, with most of that. Yeah, I think I don't think gold and uh, Bitcoin are in competition. I think they uh, it's often perceived that way, and a lot of people get into a lot of fights with other people mm. about uh, about that because they're simply people who are skeptical of the current state of play. So if you're a gold investor, you're probably skeptical of the current state of play. If you're a Bitcoin investor, you're probably heavily skeptical of the current state of play, uh, and as a result. Some people just want to fight, right? They they choose <laughs> violence, and uh, and they get into big fights on Twitter, and they they make a big thing about you know, uh, Bitcoin is going to eat gold's lunch. I don't think that's uh, I don't think that will be true of the short term. I think there are people who believe that uh, there is an interesting correlation between drawdowns from gold ETF holdings, while uh, you know Bitcoin ETP holdings, you know Bitcoin funds is going up. Uh, and it, you know, on a sort of a tactical level, I, I can imagine some people getting sort of seeing Bitcoin as the new anti-dollar, and so mm-hmm. just putting some money in there. So drawing money out of the gold fund and putting it in there. I mean, I've I've spoken to, uh, you know, I remember speaking to a fund manager who was just saying, uh, who got into Bitcoin relatively relatively early for this bull run, uh, but the money he'd he'd used to to do that, he had taken from his uh, his positions in gold miners, and I imagine that is not. Uh, you know, I, I imagine that's quite common amongst people who are sort of skeptical, expecting inflation, uh, thinking, you know, there's going to be big shocks, etc. Uh, this is, I'm going to take a bit of my money from gold and I'm going to put it into Bitcoin. I don't think they're, all, they're the same asset at all. Uh, I think, you know, and I think Bitcoin trades much differently from gold when you look at it, its actual price action. Uh, but I think people realizing that, the market realizing that is going to take a lot of time. I think, uh, you know, people going for both, uh, you know, going for Bitcoin instead of gold, I think it's a phenomenon that's not going to last all that long. I, I would imagine that gold uh, will retain its uh, allure as treasure, which you know, mankind has, uh, has uh, been drawn to for millennia, uh, while Bitcoin will, will take its own role um, as sort of digital store of value, digital um, uh, you know, unit of account, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I, mean, get, I get the feeling that people that... Uh, probably investing in Bitcoin now wouldn't have been investing in gold anyway. And that those that are investing in gold and Bitcoin um, aren't, aren't necessarily shifting one away from the other, but maybe just looking at something like Bitcoin as opposed to, you know, some of the hot parts of the stock market instead and, and, and almost treating Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies just like they would a, a stock in that sense. And it's actually, it's interesting you mentioned about the ATPs because there's now, a full blown ETF uh, on the Canadian yeah. market that listed just, I think it was yesterday. Uh, and it, it broke like all first day volume trading records, um, obscene amounts. And, and they, there still isn't weirdly an, a, a Bitcoin ETF in the US or the UK or any market for that matter outside of Canada that I'm aware of. I know there's, <clears throat> there's one in Australia that's been trying to get off the ground but was boo-booed, I think, by the regulator there. But, I mean, maybe this is this the next big wave? Aside, you know, you've got the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is just absorbing Bitcoin as fast as humanly possible. And MicroStrategy, which is effectively like a Bitcoin ETF with the amount that they're purchasing. Uh, I think another trillion is, not another trillion, another billion is going in to, yes. uh, to their kitty for, for Bitcoin. Um, it, it, to me, it just seems like if there is a US ETF, which there probably will be, and I would expect that there's probably going to be other ETFs around the world, there will be multiple ones. I get the feeling, and this is where, you know, when Nick was saying before about, you know, where, does, where, do, where do we find the problem? Where do we find the value? Where is the price for this? Uh, 
I, I, you've got, I've got to think that it's just astronomically even higher than here. If you're thinking about all these products and funds that are coming to the market that have just, there's just not enough Bitcoin to go around for everyone. I would add as a, as a caveat to that, that while it is great to see ETS finally coming to the space uh, with that Canadian one, it was like the most popular Canadian ETF for that day on the same day it launched, which is really quite remarkable. Um, while there are the, while there is that innovation it's still ETF uh, demand still relies on, uh, you know, broader market sentiments and broader investor interest. So I would suggest that while, you know, it is great to see these ETFs coming there and that is indeed very bullish to the price. You see the kind of, you know, just monstrous volumes of Bitcoin that Grayscale is absorbing. You know, just the huge amounts of BTC that they're just buying, you know, day in, day out. Uh, mm. And, you know, the, the investors keep bidding up the, the price of the share. So they keep on buying it. Um, you know, that is as incredibly bullish. But if the if market sentiment changes, the presence of an ETF doesn't need to be uh, necessarily a bullish thing. That's it, true. It can, it can just be bearish over time. Um, yeah. I mean, Nick, what do you make of that with the sort of securitization of, uh, of Bitcoin and, uh, you know, whether or not, you know, here in the UK, the FCA has made it quite clear they don't want uh, uh, everyday investors owning uh, Bitcoin derivatives. Uh, and that includes some of the ETPs uh, that, that have been you know, so far uh, created. Oh, what do you make of that? Do you think that's going to change? Well, it's one of those things, isn't it, where, you know, are, are crypto derivatives any riskier than regular derivatives? I mean, you could mm. make the case that really, you know, regular people, by, by that I mean just regular investors, people without a high degree of sophistication. I would probably include myself in that. You know, I, I know enough about the financial system, but I'd probably bracket myself there. Probably shouldn't be owning some of this stuff because it's very hard to understand how the price will move in a, in a given um, situation. So I, I don't have a problem with that position. Uh, I do have a problem with the idea that crypto is somehow different to a, a, the regular derivatives market or indeed, well, if that's the case, then the, then the regulator should be making it easier for people to invest in actual cryptocurrencies encouraging people to learn encouraging people to educate themselves rather than making the whole thing a taboo because people will buy what they want to do they you know, what they want to buy they're grown-ups so by making certain parts of the market off limits you just create this perverse set of incentives to go and and and, and give your money to a disreputable broker rather than just learning something about the market you know it's it's a, it's a silly way of approaching something but the the fixation on derivatives isn't particularly because would I recommend somebody go and buy as a crypto derivatives product? No, definitely not. Definitely not. Don't do it. It's, you, you won't understand it. You, you can't understand how the permutations of different moves will play out. Um, the, the sort of securitization thing is interesting. I mean, a lot of this is reminiscent of 2017 and you know, the, the crypto markets go in cycles. I mean, my view on it would be, I get Sam's view that never sell it all if you're, if you're in, stay in. However, I would say take enough profit that you'll be able to ride out the crypto winter that will, that will come after this. There will be a down move and it will probably be a horrible one if you bought at the wrong moment. So sell enough that you're kind of happy with what you've got. You're going to let some ride and that's going to help you psychologically sort of move through the, the next down cycle because... You know, taking, taking profits is no bad thing. I think what Sam really means is don't, don't cash in all your chips and say I'm done because he sees it going somewhere in the future that you, you know, you'll regret that decision. But will you regret taking enough money off the table to, to cover any losses or down moves in the future? I don't think you will. So that's how I would go about that. I think the, the, the biggest story that seems to be playing out across cryptocurrencies and other financial markets right now is, and this is what I'm trying to get my head around just in my own work, if it feels like now the trends we're seeing in the financial markets are no longer just economic, they're social. And that makes them really hard to understand and predict and value. So I'll, I'll just give you two examples to tell you what I mean. When I first started in the industry, we would write about things like the BRICS, like emerging markets or the Asian middle class, <laughs> China and the associated commodity boom, being peak, peak oil. 
know, they were all thoroughly economic ideas. They were grounded in economics and then they became financial trends on the back of that. Now we have things like cryptocurrencies or green energy or the GameStop Wall Street bets stuff, which, yeah, there's an economic dimension to it, but it's social as well. And I would say, argue it's becoming more of a social trend than it is an economic trend. And I, I find that really hard to get my head around. I don't really know what that means, whether that's uh, an anomaly that we're seeing right now, just the situation that everybody's at home kind of just messing about on the internet and it's you know manifesting itself in this way or whether or not you kind of have to figure out the social element of these trends as well and I, I think that's what i find hard about bitcoin that okay well there's there's this other side to it there's this community side there's this 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 yes social trend that i don't quite understand and can be quite fickle could move the price one way or the other but it makes it really hard to put your finger on what the price of something should be really really hard and i suppose the best thing to do then is just get your asset allocation right so that you can own some of it but not so much that it's going to blow you up if it goes wrong you know you could say that across all of these things probably not the GameStop stuff but the other bigger trends you can probably make that case yeah i would broadly agree with that nick just in terms of your general view to begin with when it came to uh, you know bitcoin i mean i've uh, as i've uh, written publicly recently you know i've taken some of my of the money i've made from bitcoin off the table and I, i'm using it to buy more gold as uh, broadly speaking you know there's uh, most speculative opportunities i see is really an opportunity to to get more gold so uh, we've seen a great bull run so far. Maybe, maybe it will continue. Uh, you know, maybe it'll double from here. Maybe more. I mean, that, that's fine by me. I'm very, I'm very comfortable with simply having more gold because it's not like I've sold all my Bitcoin. I've got, I still got plenty of it. Uh, and you know, in the future, if it, if it carries on riding the way it's gone, then then it's all good. I think for me, one of the worrying things I see is the, uh, you know, something that might disturb the the great Bitcoin rally, is this very, uh, very strong and resurgent rally which we're now seeing in yields in uh, u.s government debt now which is of course a proxy for yields broadly uh you know ever since august last year they bottomed and now they're just they just keep going up the level that they're at is nowhere near where they were pre you know pre woo flu lockdown but that doesn't mean the momentum of that uh, doesn't have an impact especially when you consider the amount of debt that has since been created as a result of the woo flu lockdown so that increase in rates is going to cause more of a tightening than it would have previously. And I wonder if that's going to be what causes the the risk off, uh, you know, the the risk off move where the stock market gets its ass handed to it, uh, and Bitcoin by proxy in terms gets uh, gets wrecked. Uh, I wonder if if that's going to, you know, if, if that will in future. But if if you know, maybe it will in the future. But we've still got uh, a fair while to go first, because it does seem like the the mania that we attribute with 2017 has not yet really arrived uh, when it comes to the, the, the crypto market more broadly. I mean, Sam, you, you pay attention to the, uh, you know, the sentiment regarding uh, crypto more than I do. When it comes to repeats of 2017 with repeats of uh, the euphoria that came with it, do you think we're there yet when it comes to the number of people expressing that euphoria? You know, what's interesting is that right now, I think what we're seeing is a euphoria from those that have been through that 2017 cycle and then the, the winter, so to speak, after it. And that are like, yeah, vindicated. I, I stuck around with this shit long enough and now it's come good again. Um, you know, probably dumb a dough on, on a few bits, pieces here and there, but on the bulk of it, you know, you're, you're shining bright. What I find interesting is that I don't think we've reached hysteria yet. I don't think we're really close to that. Um, what, what fascinates me is that it feels like the stock market has more of that irrational exuberance in it than the crypto market does in that stonks only go up. Um, and it, that, to me, that, I'm more worried about the stock market crashing first than the crypto market, but we know that when the stock market does tend to crash is that it just tends to be a mass flight out of all risky assets and that cryptocurrency does still get hit by that as well. But then, then with the stock market, you're kind of like, I mean, it doesn't stop until the music stops and it doesn't seem like the central bank is going to turn that music off anytime in a, in a, you know, in a hurry, I suppose. 
Yeah. I think uh, when you look at the price action in the few Bitcoin related stocks that we've got, this is something that Sam, you've written about quite oh extensively. God. It's so when it's crazy, the right? Rally. They're trading on multiples. So when you look at the actual assets that they hold in crypto, and you can, you can multiply that out into fiat money because they're listed companies that are priced in fiat money. And then you look at what they do. Most of them are miners and you see how much they mine and earn in revenue, which they pretty much mine and sell to the likes of, you know, into the market or, or OTC to the likes of Grayscale and all these funds that are buying up over 100% of the mining Bitcoins. When you start to add those up and then you see the multiples they trade on, they trade on multiples like fucking Tesla. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, and so that to me is far more... Of, of something to be worried about than, than the actual price of the underlying cryptos. I would say the, just to bring the threads of, of, of the, the three points that we just made together. I mean, Boaz, you talked about yields rising on US government debt. So if that trend continues, that's what, what you really mean is that that's an indication that inflation is coming, right? That's why yields would, would, would rise in general, though the bond market would be suggesting higher inflation and inflation expectations in, in the u.s is at something like an eight-year high so they are rising um i would say i think the madness will continue in financial and, and, and cryptocurrency markets well they're, they're the same thing now aren't they um until uh, inflation takes a hold in such a way that that becomes a social movement so movement is probably the wrong word but until it becomes baked into society's views and behaviors the madness in asset markets will continue because right now inflation is dead from a monetary point of view and from a real world point of view as in people don't act as if inflation is here or it's coming and and they haven't for a long time there's asset price inflation but there isn't wild inflation at the in the real world level you can argue that there's, you know, there's, there's price action that would suggest otherwise, but I don't think people have that expectation of inflation just yet. If that changes, that's what will change the dynamic for the whole market because it would force central bankers probably to act way too late. Inflation would probably get out of control if it really took off. That's what would kill uh, the stock market. You know, stocks might enjoy the rise to three or four percent, but if inflation went double that, it would it would really, really hurt the stock market. I have no idea what it would do to cryptocurrency markets because they're too young. But I I would say until we get inflation, the fact we'll 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 see asset price inflation. So until we get real world inflation, we'll see asset price inflation. But when we get real uh, real world inflation, and if that takes a hold in such a way that it becomes baked into people's worldview that's when things will get messy, really, really messy. And that's when you'll want to hold gold. You probably want to hold Bitcoin at that point too, but that would be more. I, 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 by the way, I have no idea when that will come. I think that will be the end game for this. Uh, but, but people said that 10 years ago and it never <laughs> happened. So it could be in five years time, in which case we could be on the verge of the biggest crack up boom of all time. I mean, arguably we are in the early phases of it. You look at the, the stock market and the cryptocurrency, but you know you can't can't remove that as a factor. But I think I think that's the real risk now. Hmm. I would I would add a caveat to that. The you know the US ten year rising may not necessarily be inflation related. It could be partly inflation related. Uh, I think there's uh, sort of another side of it where the uh, you know. U.S. government debt could be entering something of almost a bear market. You know, it could be selling off more broadly simply as a result of the sheer quantity of U.S. government debt that's now being issued uh, as a result of keeping everyone in lockdown, uh, paying all the entitlements, paying all the welfare, uh, paying for the U.S. military, etc. And that becoming so much of an issue that the, the participants who would normally bid for that, normally pay for that, are simply not being able to hold on to it as much as they would like, or uh, you know, not even as much as that they can. You know, they're losing capacity to deal with that with that debt load because you know primary dealers need to uh, need to buy every treasury ultimately, and they don't need to hold it afterwards. So, if uh, broadly the the financial system can't cope with the amount of debt that is being you know shoveled in its face. Uh, then the, you know you're going to see a, a sell-off to some degree, and that could be what's happening. But that's only that's only a possibility. I but, think uh, you could be right. You could you could complete, but but I think those two ideas are compatible with one another because 
But yeah. well, where does the trend end? So yields can't keep rising indefinitely. The, the USA cannot afford for its for its its yield to increase beyond a certain level. It just can't. It has to refinance something like sixty odd percent of its debt in the next four years. You know, some of this debt that it, this money that it's been borrowing is coming due right now in the in the near future. So if it um, so just one of my children just started crying in the background. Um, <laughs> I'll leave that for my wife to sort out. Um, you know, the, by the back door, the same, the same thing could happen because yields could rise and the Fed could be forced to say, well, we're not going to let yields rise. We're just going to go in and defend the, the price of debt in the market. And that would lead to a fall in the price of the dollar. And that would lead to inflation. So you could get the same you know, outcome via, the same, but via a different route. Yeah, I think uh, I I would agree that they're sort of two sides to the same coin with uh, debt capacity, you know, the amount that can be purchased at a decent price and inflation expectations are, are similar, a very, very similar uh, situation. I think the Fed stepping in to create yield curve control, I don't think we're quite there yet where the Fed just says, you know, for every treasury that the banks can't buy, uh, we're just going to buy it instead. I don't think we're quite there yet. And I, yeah, I, I do wonder whether or not we would see a different manner in which this debt can be sort of uh, pushed over to somebody else. There's the, uh, you know, Russell Napier has made some quite interesting uh, observations recently, you know, from a historical, uh, historical perspective, etc. that, uh, you know, financial institutions uh, are going to be the ones that are used to keep yields down ultimately. So they'll just simply force pension funds, uh, banks, etc., to own a huge amount of uh, debt in order to uh, keep you know yields capped to keep the the interest rate low. And uh, at the same time, uh, in doing so, they prevent the central bank from having to print the money to do it. But in doing so, they mean that uh, stocks have to go down because all these financial institutions can't hold. Uh, as much stock as they used to. Uh, so I think, uh, I wonder if that sort of introduction of prudential financial regulation when it comes to government debt might be something we might see. But, you know, all things considered, this is still a bad thing for risk assets. And I would think that is bad for crypto as well. I don't think yet it has achieved its dream of being, you know, the instrument of sovereignty for the individual. I, I fully support that project. I'm 100% behind it. But it is simply the, the the manner in which you know when these prices go up. I don't think it's because individual sovereignty is going up. I think it's because there is you know speculative, risky capital that is flooding into that market. Do you know what we might end up seeing? Is we might end up seeing one of those weird situations where there's just like a flight back to to those real hardcore dividend paying value stocks where everyone's just like, I just want a stock that goes up four percent a year pays a five percent dividend and that's made done until i'm dead uh yeah it'd be great it'd be a return to simpler times Sam. it would be like going back to the late like to like the 90s or something like that although granted i don't remember much of the 90s apart from ninja turtles and transformers but i would i would imagine the dividend that the, the the true core investment fund remember what investment fundamentals used to be like where you'd look for value and dividend yield and like pr companies that made profits and things like that, that it, the, the, the 21st century has just been this weird anomaly where, and, and we talked about this before where Nick said, you know, there's, there's elements of social uh, analysis that needs to be factored in when you're looking at, at assets now, because he's absolutely right. Like something can be trending on Reddit, and that makes it more valuable than something that's not. That shit didn't didn't exist twenty years ago. Uh, it was just you know if it, if it, you used to get stock numbers in the newspaper for Christ's sake. Um, so it, it is. It, it and I think maybe it's a technology thing. Maybe it's just a world thing where because of the way that the financial system has kind of really evolved since the early seventies uh, that. And now with everyone having access to real-time information and everybody having access to it, not just like a few people, everyone because of the internet has access to all information all the time, whenever they want. And so people are smarter and more knowledgeable and they're probably more sophisticated than we give them credit to. Um, and it means that all of a sudden now that people are willing to go, it's the YOLO trade, I suppose, 
the the you so, only live no, once trade i i think it's simpler than that i think <laughs> okay so old-fashioned stock analysis or asset market analysis you know you take a revenue stream and you value it over time okay mm. so but in a world where cash doesn't pay anything and bonds are trending towards zero so nothing seems to have a revenue stream i mean some stocks do stocks that pay a dividend but loads of stocks don't i mean mm. most tech stocks don't pay a dividend half the tech stocks out there in the world don't even make any profit so there's no sort of income analysis you can do so the idea that you could value different streams of income against one of those, this pays 4%, this pays 6%. So what will I, I'll pay more for the 6% than I'll pay for the 4%. The price is based on a stream of revenue. If you nail interest rates to the floor and nail bond yields to the floor and drive them negative so that none of these traditional assets have an, an income stream attached to them anymore, well, you get the world that you just described. You get this world where, how, how do you value something if there's no revenue or no income attached to it? Well, yeah. oh, I mean, someone yeah, just that mentioned that people it. People have in to a, invest in risk assets. It's like if you're a, if you're a, re a retiree and you've got none of your stocks pay dividends anymore, and you know you, you need to draw down to survive, you need to get some sort of growth in that. And if all of a sudden inflation does kick into gear and your milk now costs two quid for a pint instead of you know one then you're up shit creek because your cost of living is about to double. And so you've got to, you're forced by, uh, by the financial system to invest in risk assets to you're just not try and keep your money system. alive. You're not forced by the financial system. You're forced by, by the authorities. Yeah. You know, that, sorry, that was my point. It's not by accident. We haven't accidentally ended up in a situation where these social trends collide in such a way. So this, is, this is by design you know, whether it's a side effect of, of the policymaker or not, it's by design. These, these things have been, these situations have been manipulated into such a place so that governments can keep borrowing at levels that are unsustainable at anything other than zero or 1% interest rate. So it's uh, not to get too sort of ideological about it, but it's a situation that has been created by people who, it's, it's like Tim Price would always call it. It's the PhD standard. This is the world we get to. We put people who are quote unquote smart in charge of things. They do things that they think are in the best interests of the system as a whole. And this is the world we end up with. Now, there's good aspects of it, the technological, social community elements that come with cryptocurrencies and other things. But it's fundamentally about the fact that, you know, it's just like a computer game now if there's no revenue attached to anything really. And I know that's an exaggeration because loads of stocks do pay, a, pay an income, but it's just money is just a unit of account by which we keep score. It's like a computer game. We're all at home playing this computer game, which is... Simulation. <laughs> yeah, it's just... it's. I mean, it might be fun, but I'm not sure it's particularly sustainable. I can't imagine we look back in 20 years' time and say, yeah, that was the start of it all. Like, this will just be some weird aberration, whether it lasts two or three years, I don't know. But like, I, yeah. we'll I, I get the feeling that in like 300 years, when, when they're studying the, the economic and financial history books, they'll look back at this period and just go, oh, fuck me, they got it so wrong. <laughs> they, just, they really stuffed things up for a good century and a bit there as they sift through the blockchains of our yeah. era. <laughs> yeah, I think as they the, unplug uh, from the simulation. <laughs> yeah, reading what has been inscribed on the blockchain over time is definitely some, uh, definitely makes some interesting reading for, uh, for scholars centuries in the future. Let's um, just hope um, they, when they find your name, Sam, they just find that FT article that says, we'd never heard of him either. <laughs> 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 he looks like a giant next to Mr. Farage. <laughs> a gem, a gem of the FT. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, comparisons going around these days to, uh, you know, there's that great book, When Money Dies, where it talks about prior, you know, before the hyperinflation really arrives, there's just simply higher inflation. And that's seen as good for the stock market and things. And, uh, you know, people trading stocks were, became, it was a fashion, but it was more than just a fashion. They were driven to do it just because this was the only way of keeping your head above water when it comes to keeping your savings, uh, you know, worth uh, more than, you know, the, the, uh, the, the cost of inflation ultimately. And, 
And it is interesting to see that now where you have this dynamic of day trading becoming you know, very, very popular, especially amongst the younger population at a time when, uh, you know, 10 years ago, Ben Bernanke is talking about uh, the wealth effect being, you know, this is a, this is a great phenomenon. We're going to lower interest rates. This is going to increase the cost of assets. And as a result, people are going to feel richer. And because of that, they are going to then go out and spend more. And this is going to be good for inflation. Uh, it does feel like we're kind of reaping the storm that that created now when you have these low interest rates just getting these crazy booms in risk assets. Um, I think, you know, going forward from here, you know, there was a there was a great ETF. It was around for quite a few years before it went, uh, before it was closed. But it was called Buzz. And the whole point of this ETF was simply to buy stocks that got lots of positive attention on social media. Now, sadly, this was shot about two years ago. And uh, I just would have loved to have seen what it would have done over the last year. I mean, that went... Do you think it was short, or do you think uh, Mr. Huh. Mr. Musk took it private, secured the funding, early doors, took it private? <laughs> I suspect, actually, that the people who were running it uh, came to understand the value of the the you know the information that they were they were getting, and found a better you know return on that than charging one and a half percent on the ETF or whatever. You know, I, I think that they saw how. Yeah, how powerful it was, and then just decided, well, we're just going to sell this information to hedge funds or something. That would be my guess. Well, anyway. Most most algorithmic traders do that now. Anyway, they run they run filters over Reddit and Twitter and Facebook to just try and skim what what is what's what's hot and what's going to get what's gathering momentum, and and they make trades on the you know as one of their metrics on the basis of that. I mean, if you look back, it's obvious that this would happen. I mean. The two things, economically speaking, that have happened that have been a big deal in the last year. Everyone's been locked at home, one way or another. And most governments have started handing out free money in one way or another, particularly the US government. So if you, if you combine those two th things, I mean, I don't know why we didn't see that. All these predictions that we made in sort of March, April last year, we, as we started a sort of daily podcast. I'd like to listen back to some of that stuff, actually, because I think we got a lot of things right. Um, but I, you know, I didn't see the, you know, I, I didn't see, uh, wall street bets. I didn't see short sellers being taken down by people collectively ganging up on them, which I loved watching, even though it was, you know, securities fraud. Um, <laughs> you know, it was fun. It was a it was the drama of it was, was, you, you know, you know that you're living through extraordinary times when you're just watching price action as if mm -hmm. it's, as if it's like a football match. I mean, I remember doing that with Bitcoin in 2017. It was like, Jesus, just I've been in a meeting, it's added another $1,000. I haven't done that this time around, but, you know, with GameStop, I just found myself watching the price go up and thinking, God, someone is on the wrong side of this. It was, it was sort of predictable looking back, but at the time, it didn't feel that way, did it, you know, last year? Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite a phenomenon. I wonder how long that can last where social media sort of drives this, who uh, drives uh, capital flows and you know, occupies the press, which at the same time only reinforces that trend, right? You know, the more people see in the trend, in the press, they then jump on board that trend and say, hey, you know, I want to be on board with GME and screwing mm. the short sellers, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Uh, but, but gents, when, oh, when, so, so right now though, what do you call it? Buy the, buy the dip? BTFD, buy the fucking dip. Yeah. Yep. So I think anyone that's ever said that is going to have to get their face ripped off in a bear market before this ends. That's, that's how yeah, it there ends. Was like, a, uh, there, was a, there was a good observation by, uh, I think it was Jared Dillian, uh, who writes a, a newsletter called The Daily Dirt Nap, who said he, he reckons that if we see a, it's going to take a 25% correction on the stock market you know 25 percent bear market ultimately before people stop referring to stocks as stonks yeah uh, I, it, it will be interesting to see um, you know will that what, take us back that. to prices from what october then last year yeah i think it'll take more i think it'll take more i think it'll I think take 20, more too i think it's like, like 70 percent for people to, to to sort their shit out well you won't get 70 percent because at 70 percent or some point between 25 and 70 they'll stop printing money again you know, there's, it's going to take the central bank to change its behavior as well. We're not there yet. So 
you're gonna have to get this weird collection of falling markets but in a way that that is allowed to continue because we saw a terrible correction last year but it's going to take that it's going to take a psychological scarring of these people who 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 are bidding prices up based on the fact that stocks only ever go up and if they go down you just buy more because stocks only go ever, ever go up in the long run it's going to take again it's going to take a sort of psychological social change and it will happen i mean it'll end in tears Stonk. Yeah, I think the uh, you know the stonks reference. Uh, I think I don't. I think it will be attributed to this this period of time. I agree. It will take you know it will take a lot. Uh, contrary to your point, I do think that a lot of the people who are joining in who love referring to stocks as stonks are people who've only you know joined in recently. I don't think it's something that's. Uh, I don't think it's something that most of the people who partake in in this bear, in this bull market are. Uh, are using and as a result when they get hurt they're going to be like they're only they'll only attribute that term uh, to, to bad things you know losing money ultimately but gents more broadly uh, we have neglected to rate the beers that we have been drinking during episode 34 and we are getting on for time a bit here so i am conscious of the fact that we need to rate them uh, sam you go first yeah, so the um, Sir Plum McCartney Plum Sour Ale was uh, outstanding. Uh, Moondog has come through with a really, really bloody good sour ale there. Uh, it's a shame that it's it's all the way out in Australia. I imagine it's not probably the easiest to, to come by over here. I mean, we got it from Beer 52. Uh, we have been buying all our own beers. Nothing has been given to us yet, but if anyone feels like giving us beer, uh, we are more than receptive to that. <laughs> the quantitative ease was not sponsored by the Bank of England. We will happily take sponsorship in uh, in beers provided if anyone wants to get their beer on this podcast. But uh, anyway, uh, I, I really, really like that. I've always got, I've got a bit of a tilt to sours anyway. Uh, 4.5%, not too heavy. Uh, absolutely delicious. I'm actually going to give this a double B. Oh, wow. I mean, that's, yeah. We've been having quite a few double Bs, or at least Sam, I think you've been having quite a few. I've had a Bs. good run recently. Yeah. Nick, uh, what, what, how would you rate the beer you were drinking? I don't know what your double B was in reference to. Uh, but <laughs> I, so I, I, I drank my snake dog. It, it was all right. It, you know, it was, a, that was, it tastes like a bog standard IPA. Uh, if I'm honest, it was a little bit sweet for me. Seven percent, I think, is a bit strong, really, just for a, just for a run of the mill IPA. Then I drank. So I don't know. Do I need to give that a letter? I'd give that like a C. You know, it's nice. <laughs> so just to give you a quick rundown, we probably should have done this before we came should on. Have told me off. The, the highest rating possible is a triple B, uh, and then we work. Oh, it, it's it's inverse. Fast. It's inverse to a Moody's or Standard and Poor's. Uh, rating so triple a is the worst triple b being the highest and basically into uh, working your way down through double b plus double b all the way down to double a uh, and then triple a it's way too complicated you you're yep. gonna you're gonna alienate your your listenership i'm not gonna participate in your scoring system I'm just gonna, um, <laughs> i shall not vote of all the oh, he, uh, he abstained the, the from the was, the snake, that was that was fine that was fine um and then i drank a, a, a foolproof brewing company uh backyard another ipa six percenter now that was nice a lot nicer bit more bitter cloudier um I mean, again, I wouldn't say it was the nicest IPA I've ever drunk, but it was certainly nicer than the, the snake dog. I, I mean, they were both investment grade, let's put it that way. We're not talking junk bonds. I, I, if, you, if you buy these beers, you're going to enjoy them. I preferred the, uh, the, uh, the backyard. I refuse to go beyond that because it's too confusing. <laughs> no, we'll take we'll take investment grade. Investment I, grade works. I should that, say, that, sorry, just... the second one I drank as well was from the Fierce Brewing uh, Co. in Aberdeen. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> that was that was a good that was a good attempt that one, and it's a cross with the no, South Africa beer company, uh, Devil's Peak, and they call it Cape Sour, a hazy sour IPA at five percent ABV. Again, very, very good, very refreshing, really good sour. I didn't, didn't pick up on a particular uh, taste. Most of them are reasonably tropical. 
Um, probably maybe a little tint of passion fruit in that one, if anything. Uh, not as high as a double B, but I would I enjoyed it a lot still and give it a B plus. That, that, that might be the highest rating Fierce Brewery has actually managed to get on this podcast because we've had quite a, quite a few of those so far. Um, <laughs> regarding what I've, what I've drunk, uh, we've, we're still sticking with the old uh, Schneiderweisse Aventinus, which is a Weizen <laughs> Doppelbock, 8.2%. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I would say my appreciation for it has somewhat declined following last week, <laughs> following my copious consumption of it. Uh, I think this week I will give it an A+. Plus. That would be my, my I'll give it an A+. Plus. Uh, I think you gave it an A+, plus last week, just quietly. Oh, really? Oh, well, I was very optimistic last week. <laughs> Or maybe this week. <laughs> and, and I've been taking notes too. Uh, so day three, uh, tired, sharper after had a beer, um, yep. but will probably start to wane later on. So yep. we'll, we'll be interesting like when we come back next week for day 10. Yeah, Lord knows what it's going to look like next week, but uh, you will find out if you listen to episode 35. Uh, for now, we shall, we shall close the podcast. Nick, thank you so much for joining Thanks, us this week. It's great to have you on. And uh, Sam, as ever, it's, it's been a winner. So uh, we'll close it today. If you are listening to this, I hope you're having a, a good weekend and we shall be back with you next time with episode 35.